All right, so we're picking back up here in Lesson 18 with our study of the Gospel of John. This is Bible Braced. Welcome, welcome. Hopefully you have been following along with our Intro to Bible Study episode and then Lessons 1 through 17, and that will bring you up to date. So we're going to get right back into this. We've been studying the Gospel of John. We are up through the end of Chapter 1. Can you believe it? It's taken us 18 lessons to get to the end of Chapter (laughs) 1. No comment. But as we covered last time, we have a few things that happen only in the Gospel of John account in this early phase of the ministry of Jesus. So we've put a pause on our other Gospels that we've been going to to kind of get the full picture of different events. And we're going to pick those up again later when we get to them. But right now we're working our way through the pieces of the ministry of Jesus that only John addresses. So, so far we have seen some of John the Baptist's disciples transition from following John the Baptist to following Jesus. And we've got Andrew was one of them. We assume, I assume, the other one was the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, just because of the connections that are made through this and this group all being from the region of Galilee. And just, it's kind of a surmise of that. But I love the idea of Andrew and John, too, being together down here, listening to John the Baptist and following him. It's just sweet to see that. So then Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter and brings him to the Lord. Jesus renames him and says you'll be called Cephas or Rock, which is what that would mean. And then then Jesus, knowing they want to go back to Galilee, he goes and finds Philip. And then Philip is from the same town that Andrew and Peter are from. And then Philip goes and gets Nathaniel, which does, is Nathaniel from Bethsaida too? Did we cover that? Let's see here. I guess we don't really know that he's from Bethsaida. We just know that he was prejudiced against Nazareth. <laughs> so Nathaniel, we're not told, but he knows Philip. So maybe we can surmise that. So then they're all together. And Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and it says he wanted to before he called Philip and then therefore Nathaniel. So what's kind of interesting is it's a trip, right? We know that from studying earlier when Jesus left Galilee and came down to where John the Baptist was. This is several days of travel. So Jesus wants to head back to Galilee, and he wants to be able to attend this wedding we know from chapter two that there's a wedding that's going to happen in Cana in Galilee. Cana, on our map, we can see it's west of the Sea of Galilee, and it's quite a bit north of Nazareth. So he was heading there to be a part of this wedding. So, And he wanted to be there for the wedding, apparently, because you can see him wanting to go back to Galilee. So it's kind of interesting. So he's got a small group of followers at this point. It looks like, from what we know, probably he's got the Apostle John because this account is happening and we're hearing it from John, right? So we can assume that he was there and knows what happened. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. So we have five so far that are there. Okay, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary is at this wedding too. So we can assume there's some family connection here, some friends, and Jesus knew about it and wanted to go, which is why he left the several days in advance to get to the wedding on time. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, that's kind of interesting, too, because the disciples would have been recently called. So that's kind of interesting, the fact that they were also invited to the wedding. So maybe they got in town before the wedding and inquired or 
it's kind of interesting to think about that. Isn't it neat to think about Jesus going to a wedding? I just think that's so cute that he was involved in regular life events. You know, he was prioritizing the wedding of a friend, apparently, by um, setting off several days in advance to get to Cana on time. It's just sweet to think about. Okay, so it says, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And this has always been fascinating to me. And Jesus said to her, what does your concern have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. That has just been so interesting to me because we know that he does end up turning the water into wine. If you didn't know, spoiler alert, sorry. But then he tells Mary his hour has not yet come. But then Mary doesn't seem to take that to be an absolute negative because she turns to the servants and says, whatever he says to do, make sure you do it. So I just think that's interesting. So let's go to our footnote in this passage and see if Pastor John has anything to say on this. Okay. Woman, verse four of chapter two. This term is not necessarily impolite but it does have the effect of distancing Jesus from his mother and her request. Perhaps it has the equivalent of (laughs) ma'am. That's kind of funny to think of. What does this have to do with me? The expression common in Semitic idiom always distances the two parties. The speaker's tone conveying some degree of reproach. Jesus's tone was not rude, but abrupt. The phrase asks what is shared in common between the parties. The thrust of Jesus's comment was that he had entered into the purpose of his mission on earth so that he subordinated all activities to the fulfillment of that mission. Mary had to recognize him not so much as a son whom she raised, but as the promised Messiah and son of God. That's really interesting. My hour has not yet come. The phrase constantly refers to Jesus's death and exaltation. He was on a divine schedule decreed by God before the foundation of the world. Since the prophets characterized the Messianic age as a time when wine would flow liberally, Jesus was likely referring to the fact that the necessity of the cross must come before the blessings of the millennial age. That is really interesting. That's a comparison I hadn't really considered when you're thinking about this, but that makes sense too. You know, that's interesting insight into what the phrases would have meant and how Jesus was putting some distance between himself and his mother in this setting. And I think that, you know, you're at a wedding as family. Probably this is family or or close friend that they're attending this wedding of. And his mother is like, Jesus, they have no wine. And maybe, maybe not. Again, we, we aren't told emphatically, but maybe Mary was wanting Jesus to do something physically about it. You know, we don't know that she went, She expected him to do something miraculous, because as far as we know, he hadn't done anything miraculous up to this point in his growing up, you know, except for his conception. <laughs> that was pretty miraculous. But, you know, Jesus isn't like healing little kids and stuff on the playground. Like, as far as we know, his ministry had an abrupt beginning in the timing of God the Father. And Jesus was always focused on the timing of God the Father. They were one. And he was always led of the Holy Spirit while he did. So maybe Mary wanted Jesus to go offer to help or, I mean, who knows? You know, it's interesting that he's her oldest son and Joseph has passed away, we assume at this point, because he's not in the record at this point in Jesus's ministry. So maybe this was just the natural turning of a mother to her adult son to say, hey, they need help. 
you know, how can you help? And Jesus, it seems like he's putting distance between the way he would respond as a human to this situation. And he's focusing on the spiritual aspect of what's occurring. And he's saying like, I'm past participating in, in human concerns, like whether or not my friend has wine at their wedding is kind of the idea almost. Like that's, that is not what I'm here for, basically, is to make sure everyone has a good time. You know, and again, we're, we're trying to figure this out. We're trying to reason this out based on what we can understand from the text. We don't want to get caught up in, in just spinning a story that fits. Like, but I just want us to kind of think through what are the implications of this? Why maybe would he respond this way? So this is one option. It is not the only option and it probably is not the right one. (laughs) It's just kind of helping me to think through it and process it a little bit. So if we think through it that way, then when Jesus then goes ahead and turns water into wine, um, this is probably not, again, what Mary expected. I think a lot of times we like to act like Mary expected this, which is why she told the servants to do whatever he wanted. But again, we see that as far as we know, anyway, Jesus had not committed any miracles at this point in his life. So instead of that, it could be that she just, maybe she expected Jesus to go get some wine, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. And the servants are just to do whatever he wants them to do. I don't know. Maybe she did have insight to what was going to happen and was preparing the ground for that. It's interesting to speculate about this. But I think that the argument for Mary not understanding and her being focused on the physical aspect is stronger than her knowing this is how he's going to start his ministry because of the response Jesus gives her. I think if she was saying, Jesus, this is an opportunity, like, I think the Lord is leading you like to start your miraculous ministry right now, etc. I don't think Jesus would have kind of given her a little bit of a stiff arm. And so to me, I think she was focused a little bit on the wrong things here, maybe. And so it's just kind of interesting to think through that and to consider the options here. So then when Jesus decides to turn water into wine, when he's led of the spirit to do that in this situation, he hasn't gone back on what he said to Mary. Rather, again, his focus is not to make sure they don't have good wine his or that they don't have a good party. <laughs> his focus is to do the works God has given him to do and the season he's given him to do it. And this was a public opportunity to do that. So just kind of something to think through because, you know, we don't really see Jesus doing something like this other times in his ministry. He's dealing with the physical needs of health and life and, you know, sight and all those kind of things. Um, He's not really going around just making sure the parties stay hopping. (laughs) So it's kind of interesting to think through this. So then verse five, his mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And then verse six says, now six stone water jars were set there in accordance with the ceremonial cleansing of the Jews, each holding two or three measures. And a measure was about nine gallons, according to my my uh, Faith Life app here that I'm clicking on measure. There's a little B there, hyperlink. And if you click on it, if you're in the Lagos um, study app, you'll see a measure was about nine gallons or 40 liters. Okay, so this is a significant jar. And there are six of them there that are made out of stone and they were used for ceremonial cleansing. So Jesus says to them, fill the water jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. So this is a lot of water. I mean, good grief, nine gallons of water. We raised horses growing up, and you have to refill their water in the winter, and sometimes the pipes were frozen, so you had to carry five-gallon buckets. And a five-gallon bucket is heavy, and this is almost two five-gallon buckets worth in one jar, 
And that's a lot of water. This took a lot of time. It wasn't something they just did really quickly. So Jesus is standing there probably while they're doing this. Jesus said to them, fill the water jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. So they took it. Now this took some faith on the part of the servants, or maybe they just were obeying because they knew that he would get in trouble if they got in trouble. (laughs) I don't know. But they took some water out and take it to the head steward to taste it. I mean, they probably felt a little foolish, like, here, have some water. (laughs) When he's like the head steward, he's supposed to taste the wine before it's served. And when the head steward tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it was from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head steward summoned the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And whenever they are drunk, the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This verse right here is interesting to me because it just references his disciples believing in him. And this does seem to be more of a private miracle. Jesus doesn't get up and correct the steward and say, no, I made the wine just now miraculously, right? And so this is probably not something that everyone would have recognized as being miraculous, except for the servants, because the steward didn't even know. Just the servants would have known, and then the disciples of Jesus apparently know too. So they were probably with him when this is all happening. And so this is the first sign Jesus does, and his disciples believe in him. They see the fact that he's revealing his glory. So that's really cool. So then verse 12 says, after this, he went down to Capernaum, and his mother and brothers and his disciples. So his brothers were at the wedding too. That's interesting. Or most likely they were anyway, because they're mentioned in this next sentence. Now we know that the brothers of Jesus, we know he at least had two brothers. One was James and one was Jude. And maybe he had more, but we know of at least these two. And you know how we know is because they actually were not followers of Jesus during his ministry. In fact, there are parts where he interacts with them where they seem pretty antagonistic. But they both became believers in Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead. Mm -hmm. And that to me is like a huge confirmation of God's work. Because if someone you grew up with, if you didn't think they were the Messiah and you were angry, (laughs) angry about them thinking they're the Messiah, (laughs) what would convince you to not view that? I mean, they they saw him rise from the dead. And uh, they both wrote books in the New Testament, actually. So the book of James and the book of Jude were both written by brothers of Jesus. And what's sweet about those books, both of them, is that they both identify themselves as servants of Jesus, as as being subservient to him and as being, they refer to him as Lord. And so that's really cool that they finally got their act together and understood who they, who they had as a brother. Right. And so this is not that part yet because they definitely don't seem to appreciate his ministry and his heart and what the father had him on earth to do until much later. So we have to break here. We'll be back in lesson 19.